This podcast is brought to you by All Things Film. Wilson. No, it, it really is. All Things Film, the web's premier collection of independent movie and TV related podcasts. For more, check out www.allthingsfilm.co.uk or search All Things Film on iTunes, Stitcher or TuneIn Radio. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Japan of Fire 22 on Sabu's Kanikosen, the wild man and acclaimed maker of chase movies with some very surreal and absurd humor. You know, our, our exploration of him continues. And it's uh, more of his thoughtful humanistic streak that we're exploring here. We did that last episode with Dead Run. And for this one, me, Kennedy, and V Cinema's Coffin John will talk and review Kami Corson about a mutiny aboard a crab fishing ship. And it's a story that goes back decades and has a streak of real-life darkness attached to it as well. So we'll firmly depress you by talking of Kami Corson and its author and what have you. Uh, but uh, say hi again, uh, Coffin John. We talked to you last week and we're going to talk to you this week again. Hello again. Totally not 10 minutes later. <laughs> yeah, right. Compared to when we last spoke. But uh, let's uh, let's get into it and uh, really focus on this uh, 2009 movie. So this is Japan of Fire on the Podcast on Fire network. We are on podcastonfire.com. You'll find Japan of Fire and various other shows, including ones on Hong Kong cinema and Taiwanese cinema on that very site. And we also have bonus episodes that we do every now and again. Me and John have done. One such website-exclusive bonus episode. If you have any questions or feedback, email us at podcastonfire at googlemail.com. We have two presences on Facebook. First of all, our page, facebook.com forward slash POF network. Share if you like us, then click a like so we can increase our like like status on, on there. And uh, join with the updates and the discussion over in the discussion group. We call it Podcast on Fire Network, and that's how you find us by searching. Our tweets are available at Podcast on Fire. That's our Twitter handle. My writing on various Hong Kong movies, sleazy or not, uh, as well as Taiwanese and wacky ninja movies at SoGoodReviews.com. And I video review at SleazyKVideo.com. And my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews. On iTunes, you can also find uh, Japan on Fire as well as all the other shows on the network. And if you have the time, please uh, rate and uh, subscribe if you want the podcast delivered to you as soon as it comes out. And if you have the time, please leave a written comment. doesn't need to be a multi-paragraph review. One or two sentences will do in terms of what you thought of the show, and we would love to hear from you. And if you don't like downloading podcasts to your device, if you have it, uh, if there's already tons of podcasts on there and full of uh, pictures of your uh, pets, then you can stream us via Stitcher Radio, either via their website, but uh, if you want to do it on your phone or your pa- your iPad, for instance, there is the application available on the Apple App Store and Google Play and vcinemashow.com, formerly, pod- formerly a podcast and blog now only a blog, but it's not only. It's a very much a very versatile blog about uh, movies across Asia. So uh, tell us a little bit about that and the URL for it. Right, yeah. V Cinema is primarily uh, film reviews 
always trying to get articles up, but you know, it's takes time to write those kinds of things. So as Ken mentioned, we're at vcinemashow.com. That's S-H-O-W. We're also on uh, Twitter. Uh, we're also named V Cinema Show there. And then we're also on Facebook. Just look for uh, V Cinema. I think there are actually two V Cinemas on um, Facebook, but uh, we're the better one. Um, so that's all, that's all I got to say. So you're like, you, you spat in the face of the V Cinema movement by saying that right now? Yes, basically. Well, you know, one thing is, is kind of funny is that, uh, you know, when we were naming the site, you know, we really wanted to uh, name it something that already had a connection with some aspect of Asian cinema. And of course, uh, V Cinema is the name of it's, um, it's actually a marketing term that, if I remember correctly, it's to- Toei, yeah, Toei, the Japanese uh, film company slash distributor. They came up for their um, their direct to video line of films. You know, when we were searching for the name, I was like, oh, "V Cinema." Someone's got to have that name already. And uh, sure enough, no one had it. And in fact, the only entry that was uh, on the uh, English internet, uh, as you could call it, um, at the time, was the uh, there's a um, Wikipedia entry for uh, for the term. And then, um, you know, maybe about two or three years ago, we bypassed. On Google, the Wikipedia entry as the number one point when you search for V Cinema on Google. So that's kind of like a proud moment for us. Even though, even though our readership doesn't reflect that. You know, that <laughs> no, no, it's necessarily not that. I mean, I, even I am at the top of, if you type in so good reviews, it's not like that's a general term that generates like <laughs> right. one million hits. I'm at the top of it, but it's not like I have readership right. like out right. the ass or anything. No, no, not at all. So there you are. Right. Uh, okay, no, the rundown of what's to come here. There's not a whole lot of sections, uh, but we'll do two distinct ones within this kind of course and episode at hand. You can therefore like check the show post for running times for each respective section if you want to jump ahead to, to the review, for instance. And if you download, for instance, the show in the uh, iPhone podcast app, you can just click the show out after you've downloaded and all the text I put in the show post is visible there, including the running times. But I don't know exactly how it works in in other companies' phones, uh, smartphones, uh, in terms of how their podcast apps work. But first of all, we'll talk the background of the novel Kani Korsen and its author, and that then is capped off with our review of Sabu's film. Like two distinct sections, but uh, they're important to have in there, and uh, we will talk a little bit about the background, not just like one or two sentences. Uh, there will be no recap of uh, Sabu's uh, biography this time around, because we already spoke of it last week uh, with your listeners rather than usually there's a few months between these episodes but uh, I think uh, if you listen uh, like uh, continue on the show then the memory of Sabu and his uh, history up until now is a bit more familiar to you so that's why I skipped it so here we go plot from IMDB for Kanikosen from 2009 aboard the Japanese crab ship Kanikosen equipped with a cannery facility workers are forced to labor under pitiful conditions at minimum wages. Sick of being ruled by their harsh superintendent, one of the workers, Shinjo, urges his peers to rise up and start a revolution on board the ship. So yep, yet another adaptation, this time of Takaji Kobayashi's famous 1929 novel Kanikosen. It was published in English as The Cannery Boat, as well as The Factory Ship or The Crab 
canary ships on um, repub- uh, through its republic- republishing stages it had different English titles. It's a book written from a left-wing perspective about a fishing ship's hardships as they struggle under capitalist exploitation. And it's quite a short work too, it's 80 pages in English. And it's also been made into a 1953 movie directed by So Yamamura, who also starred in the movie. And let me stop you right there. Is that a super famous movie that's available everywhere and you've seen a bunch of times? I have not seen it. I asked my wife, who is a fan of the book, uh, whether she had seen it. She, she, of course, has seen it. She said she didn't like it. And I think that more speaks to her being a fan of the book. Um, you know, a lot of people who are very much fans of books will will never give adaptations a chance. And I, I kind of sense that from her. But I believe it's available on DVD. So uh, in Japan, of course. Yeah, I so saw a Japan DVD listing indeed. Yeah. A manga version of the book was put out in 2006. So, um, it uh, reached uh, four volumes when all was said and done. It has been adapted into two stage productions in Tokyo, one in 2009, one in 2012. So you're going to lis- uh, hear, listeners, that we're hitting on a theme of it's very much still talked of, this. And we'll, we'll explain why it, uh, it's uh, not forgotten. It's not due to the movie that it's uh, in the public eye. So like the urge creatively was there way back when to bring what was on the page to to the screen or stage. Uh, and uh, the book has struck a chord with uh, readers throughout the decades. Uh, articles um, turned up during and in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, um, talking of the book's popularity uh, among many disaffected uh, Japanese workers. Uh, obviously, the theme of the book uh, of uh, these uh, laborers uh, working under these uh, laborers working under these conditions, it, it hit home. And the 75th anniversary of the book in 2004 had a planned re- repressing of 7,000 copies, but more than 50,000 copies were needed to meet the demand. There was a Kanikosen boom, indeed. And even though that sounds like like the hardest new thing on the block is this book, <laughs> but interest was high. And there's even, um, you alluded to this uh, today uh, when you sent uh, some links to me, there's even, it might have gone on before the repressing and the anniversary, but you, you can attend um, events and uh, trips to A or various uh, Takaji Kobayashi memorials that draws huge crowds. You know, it features singing and talks uh, on the works of the late, late author. So, his uh, impact is felt uh, because many could relate to what he was communicating in this, at the time, very controversial book. And and I believe reading that article that someone, possibly someone from the West, shot a documentary about uh, one of these events. Uh, so I might, it, it sounded that way. I don't know if it's someone just shooting it uh, and putting it on YouTube or if it was like um, uh, a feature-length documentary or one-hour documentary or what have you. But it's, it sounded, uh, sounded interesting, so I might pursue that. So the theme of, of a left-wing aura of the book that I alluded to was nothing surprising coming from author Takachi Kobayashi. He was only about 26 uh, when he wrote, uh, you know, this short story, kind of course, and it can, you know, it's a novel, but many may consider it a short story, if you will. And it features, uh, as we said, the strand, the plot strand of, uh, you know, fishing workers, if you will, forming into unions. And Kobayashi himself joined the Communist Party in 1931, and life prior to this included well-respected uh, education. Despite his family being poor, they saved up money for their son's education. He wrote essays and original uh, original works, including a 1928 government critical story called March 15, 
1928, based on the so-called March 15 incident, which is a date of a crackdown on socialists and communists by the Japanese government. And the story involved torture at the hands of the special higher police, often referred to as Toko, something that didn't sit well with government officials, uh, and it's speculated that it all led to the young author's eventual murder. Kanekosen uh, made ripples at the time of publishing in the liter- literary magazine Senki, and uh, was, as I also alluded to, adapted into a theatrical performance, uh, but, but also around the same time. But the actual text was published in a magazine, but it was not available as, you know, the full text of it was not available in Japan until 1947. So it kind of came out in in magazines, but then was uh, swept under the rug a little bit. But back to Kobayashi after the, this book, the short story and various other government critiques. He was a marked man. He lost his job at the Hokkaido uh, Takushoku Bank after his essay, Absentee Landlord. He was arrested multiple times for, among other things, suspicion of giving financial support to the Japanese Communist Party. And he was even imprisoned for it and eventually went underground in 1932. In the February, in February of uh, 1933, he was summoned to a meeting in Akasaki with a fellow Communist Party member. But it turned out to be a Toko infiltrator, a special police force, and Kobayashi was arrested tortured, and the next day, authorities announced that the author had died of a heart attack. No autopsy was performed for fear of the special police force, so uh, sounds suspicious. Something rotten in Denmark. Mm-hmm. That's kind of his the, the tragic end to his life. And uh, back to Ken Corson's literary life and the conclusion of, uh, of this section. It uh, was published in book form. I mentioned 1947. Uh, maybe the text became available in some shape or form, but it was published in book form uh, uh, before 1948 but the full text became available at that time but still not quite because it had like instead slight censorship to the text so it had always found problem to found problems to be out there complete but presumably by the anniversary point there was no fear of publishing the full work uh, even though it's still government uh, critical of government uh, at that at that time, uh, many decades earlier. So that's the chemicals and boom, if you will. I don't know. Have any notes to share about uh, about it, about this time, uh, whether you knew of it or not, or knew of it for the first time uh, researching this podcast? I have, of course, known about the book just um, because of its uh, of its history. It's one of the iconic examples of uh, proletarian literature, uh, especially coming from a place like we're in Japan, where um, you know, communism, I, I guess, I don't want to say the status of uh, the Communist Party is similar to that of the U.S. because in the U.S. there is no real Communist Party. In fact, uh, you know, communism has such, a, uh, leaves such a bad taste in a lot of Americans' mouths that there's no, I don't think there's any way you could really associate with yourself with being a communist, at least in an organizational sense. But in, you know, in Japan, there is a, uh, there's the JCP, the Japanese Communist Party. And uh, this is uh, one of those books that they hold up as one of their uh, classics, so to speak. So I had certainly heard of the book. I didn't know that it had such a history in the media until I, I knew of the film, the, the Yamamura film, which was back in uh, 54, if I remember correctly you just mentioned but i didn't know that uh, it had been a, a, a stage play and all that stuff although it does make sense because you know 
a lot of the um, proletariat uh, uh, types of literature do end up being stage plays because that's a good way to get the people um, uh, to get the message out to the people, so to speak, in a, in a relatively inexpensive way. And it certainly seems uh, that the, the the setting is so restricted, so the transition to stage is quite easy too. It's not like this takes place right. all over the world. It's in one ship with occasional outdoor uh, outdoor sections, uh, but uh, mostly takes sh- takes place in one ship. So I'm I'm, I'm not surprised either. Right. It's probably the case with a lot of uh, proletariat literature is that it's easier to stage because of the setting, like you said, but also because of uh, the message is more important than any of the set dressing or or any of its literary value. So, yeah, I can imagine it being uh, a stage play now that I think of it. And I knew of the manga just because uh, I just heard about it uh, like a couple of years ago or something like that. So. I don't know if I would say fairly well known in pop culture, but I guess if you're if you follow Japan, if you're interested in it, you've, I'm sure you've heard of the book at least once. And like I said, my wife has it. In fact, it's just sitting on our one of our bookshelves right now. I can see it. Are you going to sit down and read it, or uh, reading reading in Japanese is still a bit challenging for you? It can be a challenge. It depends on how the the thing is written. You know, I can read newspaper articles fine, but you know, literature, you know, with the nuances and and symbolism and things like that, things that are beyond language, you know, that are moving more into culture can be a challenge for me. I might give it a try, um, but I know there's a an English translation, so I'm kind of more interested in reading that one, to, to be honest. You, you, you know what you should do? You should, you should impress your wife by having, like a school kid would do, uh, having the English translation in front of you, but on, on the outside of it is right. the Japanese book. So she, so it looks like you're reading the Japanese book. Oh, I'm reading. It's so good. Oh, I understand right. everything. Oh, my God. Aren't you proud of me, honey? Right. She wouldn't care anyway, though. <laughs> totally holding it the, the wrong way. So uh, anyway, well, let's move. Let's move on to the movie. My quick opinion, not 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 that my opinion is so shocking anyway, shocking or anything. But here's the deal: it's my least favorite Sabu movie so far. Uh, I've no nothing against the message here and the content that that I can say without like making this into a political discussion. But the mix of the drama, the the plot contains, and the comedy does not merge well. Good intentions not coming through cinematically. So that's my brief opinion. So in short, uh, what did you think of Kenny Corson? Yeah, I, I do have to agree that it's probably uh, least my least favorite of his works. You know, both what you said for that reason, uh, as well as um, I kind of felt the uh, the message was a little too uh, heavy handed. Um, and we'll kind of go into that, I'm sure, during this discussion. You know, like I said last episode, we were talking about Dead Run, where you know, the message is kind of a little more subtle. You know, this was like the exact opposite where it's just like, you know, hammering it, get it, hammer communism, um, the hammering it over your head, you know, and it's just not, not good for, I think, a film of this sort where it's meant to have a positive message, but it just feels it's made trite. I'm I'm sure the drama of this and comedy could have merged well, but it simply doesn't. It becomes really like, these are two products I'm watching here, and that and that's not a good thing. I I like the the comedic moments, but not coupled with a dramatic moment. Exactly. So I kind of felt I kind of felt like, well, why don't you save that idea and put it in a different movie? You know that that's why I kind of felt. You know, you no, know, don't put it in this one. You know, I mean, I know that's your trademark, but 
You know? Yeah, it, it can't always work out. And I, I, I don't know, it, n- not to put the man down or anything, but maybe this was, and I admire anyone for do, doing anything, of course, but maybe when all of a sudden done, this was too much importance to even like flirt with comedy, like co- combine it with comedy. Like, like that should have been left out because it, because it's not the like super dark and pessimistic and like it needs comedy for Christ's sake. No, no, it's not. I mean, it would have worked fine as a straight drama too, I suppose. Or maybe it, the humor could have been a little more subtle or darker or something. You know, it just, there's, I, I know there's one moment that, you know, that, that's easily, the most comedic of the story that, you know, it, it is, it is dark humor, but it's still kind of, in a way, it's still kind of light and it, 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 it's just a bad mix with the drama of the story. So, and there are some, there are some dark comic moments too that, uh, that I think fit the story, but, uh, but I think the scene in particular that, you know, we're probably both thinking of right now is not one of them. Again, I went down with, in with zero expectations. I didn't know of how, I mean, of course, I, I should assume that there were these kind of fishing ships out, but I didn't expect it to be an actual factory, too, that assembles the product, which is, was like mm-hmm. an interesting part of uh, history here, that they not only, you know, catch the crabs, they like have an assembly line and then mm-hmm. uh, fi- finalize it there on ship and then uh, and then ship it out. And it's obviously sweaty, it's cramped, and uh, the whole setting is, is well set up. I mean, these are, this is a, like a, a tired crew or slaves rather. And, uh, and it's a recognizable template, obviously, that we, we know that these are like exploited uh, workers. And uh, it, it's interesting going into it based on that. Uh, also, if you look at the movie itself, the creation of it, I'm sure it must have been a little bit more high profile for a Sabu movie because even though it was released a few years after the anniversary of the book, I'm sure this made ripples as there, there will be a movie now based on this book that so many wanted a few years ago and probably still talk to talk about to an extent so it seems fairly well timed and uh, it's a shame it wasn't um, more affecting but maybe you know a local audience that might found find it very affecting uh, but i'm fairly sure it's it's not like i'm missing 99 percent of poignancy here i, I think uh, that, that only a japanese audience would understand i think uh, i think i'm still certain of that that it is an uncertain mix of elements here and I, and I wasn't really like affected by the drama either to be honest i saw the story develop in front of me all rise and like the like the organized labor aspect of it all but i'm and there, there is death here there's darkness here really never got to me to be honest because here here's a problem too i'm sure there's tons of great actors here i don't know about you john i couldn't connect to any of them because it, it's like an ensemble piece where you where you don't really um recognize the ensemble either they they all feel very anonymous like no actors stand out and no characteristics stand out they're a unit yeah of like like a a troop of badly treated workers but i was missing some kind of connection to at least someone and they tried to make at least one main character out of this bunch but i i still felt like there there's nothing here to grasp onto which makes their plight unfortunately not affecting you know what I mean? That that and they're all dressed the same too, so it's kind of hard to differentiate everybody because everybody's dressed in a, a worker's uniform uh, all throughout the movie, essentially. I have a slightly different take on it. Um, 
actually, and first I, I should mention that if you're a really big Japanese uh, film fan, you might uh, recognize that you know the character that you mentioned as being sort of the the one that they try to uh, prop as basically the leader is uh, Ryuhei Matsuda, who was um, who is, excuse me, um, the late uh, great uh, Yusaku Matsuda's son, and he's. Duhei Matsuda has become a pretty big actor on his own in his own right. He is he's been in actually a lot of films, but uh, ones that of course uh, are I would say Japanese film fans will know him well at is like you know stuff like um, he was in uh, Takashi Miike's Big Bang Love, uh, Juvenile, and then uh, let's see he was in Rompo Noir, I remember Nightmare Detective. He was in uh, Nine Souls. Uh, which was the uh, the film by um, Toshiaki Toyota? This was that was one of his earlier roles. He was, I think, was, yeah, he was also in Blue Spring. So he's had a pretty good career up until now, and I think that you know, again, uh, Japanese film fans would uh, would definitely recognize him. Now, here's the problem that I have though with this cast, you know, with all this given is that, and this is something my wife also mentioned because she's never seen this film and she said she didn't want to see it because, you know, I guess she likes, again, she likes the book probably too much to want to see mm-hmm. any kind of adaptation about this. But I made her anyway. <laughs> no, I, she, she didn't watch it. She's, she walked by several times with a really sour look on her face. Like, come on, don't you have better things to do with your time? I'm like, Hey, this is for a podcast, honey. Okay. I can't let my people down. <laughs> this is a problem I have with this film. This is based on a proletariat um, work. And as such, proletariat literature is based on, you know, the downtrodden proletariat, obviously, you know, the poor, the hardworking, the laborers. Now you have this film led by one of the more well-known actors, young actors, I should say, who is kind of a pretty boy in real life. And you can kind of see it in the film a little bit, you know. I mean, he's he stands out above the Eric characters, you know. If you look at them without knowing who the lead is supposed to be, you could probably guess that he's the lead because the other char- the other actors are sort of on the, a little more on the nondescript side. You know, you you have all these the rest of these actors who are you know they're doing bit parts and stuff like that. I, I recognize a few of them, even though I didn't recognize their names very well. You know, that's not the type of casting for a proletariat work. And I don't, I don't want to say that, maybe I should, it's wrong to say it's the wrong kind of casting, but maybe now is not the time for this kind of work, maybe. You know, I mean, I know that I've read interviews with Sabu about this film where he's saying, well, I'm actually kind of taking the socialist angle out of it and putting in more of a humanist angle. In other words, you know, the socialism that has to deal with, you know, politics and the state and things like that. But he's saying that with this film, parallel this with, uh, you know, Dead Run, the film that we of his that we talked about last episode, that he's emphasizing the individual, you know, that the individual is the one who needs to take the responsibility for him or herself, take on that individual responsibility of making their lives better. And I kind of have a problem with that with the I mean, the message I think is relevant for now, you know, especially in Japan, where there's just a rising, there's a rising population of people in poverty, as well as those who can't get regular, you know, career oriented jobs, you know, that that message is really important for those kind of people. But it just feels out of place to have these kind of, you know, clean cut actors playing these 
downtrodden parts. You know, it just feels, even if you don't know who these actors are, you can kind of see that kind of more actors that are, are not used to these kind of parts. They're used to things like, you know, TV dramas and things like that. So that's what, that's a problem I had, you know, and it really graded on me at, at points where I'm just listening to this, you know, this sort of rhetoric individual responsibility and you know you, you've got to do you, you got to be strong and that kind of stuff and i'm like yeah but you kind of had your life handed to you on a silver platter in real life you know it's mm. it's just it's just a bad mix you know that that's how i felt about it yeah and i even like not knowing the actors uh even picked up on the lead that it's see uh, not that i require full continuity in movies because I don't notice this kind of stuff. But he has quite well-groomed facial hair that I'm wondering, like, being down there in that boat, would you really have time right. to, groom, like, shave yourself in such a mm-hmm. precise way that uh, the main character does? Which is, is something I never pick up on, but I sort of did here because I was not, after a while, I was not on board with the movie. And that's not a joke about a boat or anything. It's not my word. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I want to be a little bit fair about this because um, I know that it's not a good thing to compare the two different kinds of films and, uh, or two films and two directors. And by the way, if someone says, you know, the phrase, it's not fair to do something, it means it's, they're going to do it anyway. Right. <laughs> so I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. This is essentially a message film, right? Let's compare it with another Japanese message film, uh, Battle Royale. Very famous film, right? Yep. Directed by Kinji Fukusaku. Two different directors. They come from two different eras. Fukusaku is obviously a lot more skilled of a director than Sabu is, just by the mere fact that, you know, before, before Fukusaku died, he had already directed scores of films, whereas Sabu's not even directed, I, I would say, maybe a quarter of the, of the same, of the number that Fukusaku uh, has uh, directed before he died. But essentially Battle Royale is this kind of the same kind of film. It's got the same sort of messages to it. Um, you know, Battle Royale, I think, focuses a little more on uh, friendship uh, and uh, human relations, whereas, you know, Connie Kosen focuses more on the individual, but the same kind of idea of, you know, uplifting yourself, that same message is there. You know, if we look at the success of the two films, you know, Battle Royale, I would have to say, is much more successful. But you kind of look at it and you think, okay, look, at, if you look at the cast of Battle Royale, it's exactly as I said, it's all these, it's a lot of these kids who are now, a lot of which are now, you know, adults, of course, or they were adults when during the filming, but, you know, they look young enough. But they all have pretty successful careers. They all kind of grew into, grew up in the business. I mean, the film has, you know, Bita Keshi in it. It's got, you know, Chiaki Kuriyama, all these kind of fairly big name, you know, uh, actors and actresses in it. If you think back to what I just said a minute ago, well, you know, Connie Colson is kind of ruined by the fact that it has all these, uh, that it has like actors who kind of grew up within the industry, that kind of thing. Think, well, what what's the difference here? Battle Royale is really good at making its message subtle. I mean, obviously there's a lot of violence and stuff and, you know, that's part of the reason why people like the film. But really the message in the end is what makes that film rises makes it rise above a typical japanese like violent gore fest right you know that's why you know i think it's it's a classic of its of its era right 
Oh, oh, definitely. Uh, even I like not no, not that I picked up on all the messages, but yeah, I mean, B- Battle Royale played extremely well with me, and, and not just because of the violence and comedy, but there was something else there, obviously too. But Connie Cole said, and again, you know, people are going to kill me for comparing the two because it's it's in a lot of ways it's like comparing apples and oranges. You know, it's got a message too, but the problem is it doesn't it dominates the film, and it's even spoken to you directly you've got to do it you've got to do it you know it's like it's a very much a rah-rah type of film whereas battle royale is more like a i mean it's also sort of tells it tells you what the message is too but it's good at i don't want to say hiding it but mixing in with the drama and the violence and everything whereas connie colson that's all you have is the message you know it, it, it is very very much that that the mixture and the merging of of elements that might not be related to each other, but can be made to work. And and in Battle Royale, comedy has a place, maybe as a relief yeah. mm-hmm. because it is damn funny. <laughs> but it, it here it's while we're watching it, if we focus a little bit on, on comedy, there is a successful sequence of scenes here. It's in the beginning of the film where the workers have uh, finished a shift. Presumably, it seems like they only have five minute breaks and never sleep. Because they're called into uh, to work uh, quite uh, constantly, so they're all talk of their respective home lives. And Sabu cuts to how they describe that they they have a house and a leaky roof, and there's people walking through our house. There's dogs walking through our house, and we see that. And it's kind of quirky visuals because it's mm-hmm. it's quite dry, and uh, one even questions like a dog walking through your house. That's not that's not even possible. Like. Are you, even t- are you even telling the truth? And they all seem like they're trying to be a bit more miserable than the other, which reminded me of the famous Monty Python sketch with the rich men sitting on the Riviera or something, trying to outdo themselves with stories of how poor they once were. Oh, like, right. uh, like they said, we used to live in a lake and we ate a handful of gravel and poison for breakfast. We paid to work in the mine for 48 hours a day and was murdered by our father every night if we were lucky. I mean, it's a funny sequence and uh, events here and the cutaways to which leads into, again, this is not a spoiler, it's fairly early in the movie where it's so miserable that they all contemplate in kind of course to commit mass suicide. Which is a funny sequence. For Save your dad for a bit, listeners. Funny sequence of people trying to hang themselves. It is very funny because they're all in their desperation and misery trying to, together, all think of a, a wonderful setting for their next life, which is at this uh, rich estate, it looks like, where they all play volleyball all day together. Like, they, they, they all say, like, uh, like imagine the Kimura family or the Kimura estate. And Sabu several times cuts to a few of the cast members playing volleyball together, and it's all good. And then they try to hang themselves. And want to describe why it fails? Uh, they're on a boat, after all. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I, I would think you don't want to spoil that. Yeah. Right, right. We'll, we'll, we'll keep it at that. But we're seeing as it's early in the movie, we're still going to follow these characters. The mass suicide does not work very well. It's an excellent comic sequence that I thought, like, Okay, he's getting into a groove here, and it might coexist with this message and uh, the exploitation of the, the labors that is clearly present here. And it's major dialogue blocks as well, which is interesting to follow. Like, I, I can see, I, I can watch actors talk. Yeah, I have no problems seeing actors talk for 10, 20 minutes like a David Mamet play or what have you. When maybe we're out of that mass suicide scene and the various dialogue blocks and into the whole 
crisis at hand, if you will. I'm asking myself, is this a comedy or not? Or is he really trying to balance the two moods? If we boil it down to two moods from that point and up until the ending, I firmly realize that he, he never finds that groove between the light and the serious, despite individual scenes being a bit funny. Mm-hmm. But, but even like, even light individual scenes, like when uh, two of the, um, Two of the workers, they've escaped the ship and they're picked up by the Russians. And they're kind of treated to uh, a little party, uh, watching the Russians and um, eating with them. Played light, not funny at all. Because I know this is partly a serious movie and I'm waiting for the movie to decide what it's going to do. And I I need it, in this case, in the case of this movie, it needs to decide on one thing. I realized that uh, after half the movie or three-fourths of the movie. And that and that boils down to like my brief opinion that uh, it it needed to pick rather than feature co- comedy and the message and the darkness and uh, therefore neither really becomes effective overall. One side note about the um, the Russian uh, ship scene, you know, and this is not really relevant to the actual maybe to the actual re- review of the film or the quality of the film, but. Um, you know the characters on that ship, the Russian characters, and there's one Chinese character who um, can speak Japanese. You know, if that were actually not a Japanese film, if that if that scene happened on a, in a um, excuse me in a Western film, I think a lot of people would actually consider those characters being very racial, racist depictions. Excuse yeah. Me, of, um, because you know the Russian characters, they all have the you know the hats on. They're all they're all doing the the dance. I I. I I'm, I actually don't know very much about Russian culture, despite having like several Russian coworkers. But you know, it's almost it's almost like you know, like just put in the vodka and, and we'll just do the whole stereotype, you know, the, you know, triumvirate basically, you know. And you know, the character who is um, Chinese speaking Japanese, he's speaking like basically what we would call a a Chinglish version of Japanese. And I kind of felt that a little like. I mean, I know it's the Western Westerner speaking in me. You know, I kind of felt almost a little racist that, I, and I know that in the original book, the character what happens is the two characters become capsized in Russia itself, and they run into a, a Chinese, a character who can speak uh, Japanese. So that's not like it's something he added into the story. But I just kind of felt that the depiction and the and the kind of like language that the actor used was you know kind of almost i think what we would call racist because it it, it just that seemed really actually bothered me a little bit you know to be honest yeah it's kind of this wacky is translating what in what seems like again i'm relying on the subtitles in kind of a fragmented but wacky way if that makes sense uh, uh, but he's also putting in he's also trying to um say motivational things to these two characters that are no longer on the cannery ship it almost seems like they plant the message there and forcefully so i mean that's the unfortunate um how can i say it that's one of the unfortunate qualities of proletariat literature is that a lot of times the mess there's a vessel for the message and that vessel is usually very like obvious it's like oh here comes here comes this chinese character He's obviously different from the Japanese characters, so he's going to impart some sort of wisdom on them. And guess what that wisdom is? It's socialism, you know? So it's kind of, proletariat literature is very much like that. It's very close. I mean, proletariat literature is propaganda, you know? And propaganda, if you've watched propaganda films, they're also very much like that. 
there's a message that that's contained in this vessel. Once you open that vessel up, it just spreads out over the film and suddenly, you know, it's a whole different new world where we're following this new message, you know. North Korean cinema is like this. You know, a lot of the older Russian cinema is like this. Japanese cinema pre-World War um, II is very much like this. You know, it's succumb to the state type of stuff. And and I only say it's because my my wife loves um, propaganda film. So, you know, I've watched several things with her. But it's always like that. It's always like some different element to the story is here and suddenly we're going to all learn all about socialism in 10 minutes. You know, it's, it's just, just this weird, weird characteristic of, of the media. That that's not like a, okay. This sounds might sound inappropriate, but when it happens here, it's not like this, like I know about this type of literature, so I'm doing it the same way. It, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a um, retro thing that he's referencing. No, it's, it, it's clearly something that he wants to do, Sabu, here, and tell. Being forceful is not good for this modern move. It'd be forcing the message in here, I think. In the case of this exchange, anyway, if we look at the Chinese uh, uh, character. Right. Well, to Sabu's credit, I mean, a lot of the message that he has for the film is not politically oriented. Politically, or it's more socially oriented, you know, so... If he were to add politics into it, like if he if it was true socialist rhetoric or true communist slash socialist rhetoric, then the film could could easily be seen as jingoistic. But, you know, I guess to Sabu's credit and um, I I would doubt that he has any interest in communism in general that he keeps on the on the social level. But he still keeps the format of the film as being essentially, you know, proletariat in that he has that same exact device that I talked about. It's that, that vessel is opened up. It's like Pandora's box almost, you know, you open it up and everything spreads out and the whole story changes because of that. I have to say that it doesn't really, unfortunately work <laughs> very well. You know, one thing that maybe no one has an explanation for this, uh, the score is techno, techno oriented and, and heavy rock oriented. Right. Which is also, yeah, completely anachronistic. What was the point of that? Like, that doesn't create mood, because it's not a particularly good score anyway. But it seems inappropriate for the period, because it's not making a modern modern movie here. So it's kind of a, a, an ill decision in the middle of a stretch of the movie where I definitely wasn't on board with it anyway. For, for what it's worth, I mean, it's a decently mounted film, and some of the punishing nature directed towards the characters are felt on an individual scene basis, but it all needs to reach a fever pitch about these workers not taking it anymore and, you know, standing up. And there will be main characters dying, therefore, and that needs to be felt as well. It never, like, emotionally gets to those places, even on an individual scene basis. It's not like the comedy prior has ruined all the opportunity for the movie to, like, flip-flop into or switch into something that's more of a victorious movie in terms of its final grade. But no, the more it ran, despite being quite a shorter movie than Dead Run, I was more looking at, like, the clock and waiting for this to kind of just put a cap on it. And uh, the the fever pitch was was missing, and uh, it should have been there in some shape or form. It doesn't need to be loud, but it needs to be felt. Well, you know, the problem with that is, as I mentioned, you know, um, the cast sort of does not fit in the film, you know, in both an anachronistic manner, but also I think also in a skill, in a manner of skill, because the performances in that film are extremely spotty at points. You know, we have a, 
at least a couple scenes where, you know, characters are basically, you know, there's supposed to be emotional, they're screaming, they're crying, you know, they're saying like, hey, you know, we can't take this anymore, blah, 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 you know. And at that point, you know, like, I just in my head, I was, you know, putting myself in the director's seat. This is the point where I'd say, cut. What we need here is more emotion, guys. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Talking like the trailer, man, in a world where there is emotion. That's what we need. <laughs> it just felt like instead of power, I was feeling more like whiny little kids. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. You know, instead of like a man who's rising up against the man, you know, for his treatment, you know, as a worker, I kind of felt more like a hissy fit over a $1 deduction on and a weekly allowance, you know, that that's how I felt like the, the emotional level was, you know, it's a, uh, that that's, I, that's definitely a problem in the film. I think is that, you know, you have actors who don't really fit the part and whose acting ability cannot reach that fever pitch, as you said, you know, mm-hmm. I hate to go back to battle Royale, you know, the more successful film. And again, you know, once I say I hate to do it, well, I'm going to do it anyway, right? You had characters and you had actors who, you know, maybe by all rights, you know, also do not necessarily fit that kind of role. But, you know, they do it successfully, you know, because there are generally some pretty good acting going on in that film. It's not it's not great. There's spotty moments in it for sure. You know, it's enough there for you to grab onto and for the movie to keep you moving, uh, uh, moving along. Whereas in Connie Kosen, it's a sticking point. You know, it's like, do I have to hear this whiny ass bitch again? You know, (laughs) and that's kind of sad because again, you know, you know, with a better cast or, you know, the film could have been, I think, better at least, but I think there are some problematic uh, portions of the story that we've already covered that, uh, that probably wouldn't have made the film great. I think it'd be always kind of forever stuck in okay, you know, like that. There, there is some like slow motion ending imagery and even imagery before that involving some discovery of uh, people have been who have died, either hung themselves or been tortured to death. That that's very poetic and haunting, uh, but that that's like visual moments that that's doesn't add to the overall feeling of the film and the moments in the film but uh, he's been good at using some slow motion imagery both in dead run if you think of uh, the imagery involving knives in dead run there's an earlier scene in dead run where mm-hmm. someone is about to stab someone and it's imagery that's repeated in the movie quite poetic and haunting uh, so there, there is style here but uh, as we said to put a cap on it it doesn't merge well uh, and uh, with uh, within the serious drama and with comedy comedy that is on its own again that whole sequence the mass suicide sequence and them all trying to top each other's despair and misery in their lives uh, outside the ship very funny on its own but uh, and and show sabu has got that touch still in his uh, in his second decade as director but uh, it uh, wasn't intriguing or gelling for this particular movie and, and it can't be perfect all the time but you would have hoped that this movie in particular would have worked uh, as uh, because it's based on such an important work but sometimes it simply doesn't 
So let's uh, put a cap on it. As for availability, it's available on Japanese DVD, but no English subtitles are available. I therefore watched that version with added English subtitles. And there is nothing else out there. There is a US DVD listed, and it's by Asian Crush. But if you look, uh, it's on Yes Asia. Okay. But if you look at uh, the DVD cover, it looks like a bootleg. It might be the Japanese DVD with English subtitles on it. So, it, but it, it doesn't even have the official DVD logo on it. You can tell that something is a bootleg because you have to pay to use the official DVD logo on your DVD. You know, Asian Crush is a relatively new distributor. I believe they're based in New York. And actually, you know, they they have a lot of listings on Amazon for DVDs. And I know for sure they do uh, streaming. They've actually bought up a lot of films just for streaming purposes. So Connie Kosen, at least here in the United States, is available on streaming uh, Amazon. It might be available on Netflix and other things, too. I know know for sure it's on Amazon um, because I partially watched that version. The, the actual image and transfer might be okay, but the cover was mostly surrounded in like this blue, blue frame and 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 just a tiny image of the Kenny Corson poster on it. Uh, they have other listings for uh, you know other films and that are very similarly pictured. And I always there've been a couple of films I thought you know I'd like to have that on DVD, but I don't know about this. It looks a little fishy, you know. I mean, I know Asian Crush is a legitimate company, but. Just the fact that they list it that way is kind of, you know, iffy. So it's like, oh, just stick with the streaming. You know? <laughs> right. So that's us for this second episode in a row for you listeners. But we are almost done with Sabu in terms of this series. So his career is ongoing, as we've alluded to. But we conclude our coverage of the man making mostly, but as you know from the last two episodes, not wholly, wild and quirky chase cinema. And we conclude it all with movies i well i don't know anything of one of the movies movies i'm gonna say now i can assume some things about the other movie i'm gonna say right now so the two uh, movies we're gonna review next time either in one episode or two episodes is 2011's bunny drop which by all accounts looks like a like a simple little family drama yeah i think that's an adaptation of a manga if i remember correctly right right yeah i remember reading something about that when doing the biography initially and some mention of uh, a manga adaptation so and uh, so I don't know anything of it. I'm going in with zero expectations. And the se- final, 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 final movie of our review uh, review series is 2013's Miss Zombie. You can safely say it's a zombie flick, but it doesn't mean that we know anything of it. Despite it might come at us with a different set of uh, skills and intent. And uh, I only know that it got a good review on V Cinema, but I never really read it because I want to go in with as little expectations and knowledge as possible and give give you all my take on Miss Zombie from 2013. I, I kind of half assume that, or maybe wholly assume that, both are available officially with English subtitles or uh, fan subbed. Uh, so uh, so hopefully we won't need to cut any of those movies from coverage. But uh, Cross your fingers. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I, I, know, I know there's a great like community of fans of Japanese cinema that do write subtitles and do sync up subtitles from other sources for Japanese DVDs and Blu-rays that do not have English subtitles. It's a, it's a great community in that regard that, unfortunately, in Hong Kong, in the Hong Kong cinema community, we're not as spoiled uh, that way. So Yeah, in fact, I used to be one of those subtitlers. From scratch, or did you, like, uh, clean up translations, or what did you do? Uh, a little of both. 
So you've been a good man and you've shared your work on the internet uh, seemingly for uh, like without like you're gonna pay me fifty bucks to get the subtitles. You didn't do you didn't do any of those schemes, right? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> can't get money from people anyway. No, Tra- exactly. Translation translation is an art that is just so woefully you know under underestimate or underrated, whatever you want to say. It's it's so devalued, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, people don't care about. You know, they care that they have something in their own language, but they don't care about all the work that goes into it, unfortunately. And uh, furthermore, we'll update the bio to see what Sabu is up to at the time of recording the finale, because when I viewed the IMDb bio yesterday, I seem to remember that one 2015 entry that is now there, that's called something Chasuke Journey something. Tenno Chasuke, yeah. Mm -hmm. Was in pre or maybe post-production, when we did our first episode, now listed as finalized. And I think that's the Kitano production, like, for his company, right? I believe so, yeah. And I think Sabu's working on something new now. I thought thought I'd heard something, but I didn't want to mention it because I couldn't confirm it. That uh, 2015 movie is too new to have any release, so I will just kind of check in to see if there's anything on it and give give you a final perspective on where the career is at and actually you know one more thing uh, um i was thinking of possibly trying to track down the uh tv series that he did in japan i'm, I'm pretty sure it's not been translated uh it's called a uh, trouble man i saw some listing of that yeah 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 and it's supposed to kind of fall in the same vein as uh his earlier you know comedic type work so but what um, are we talking here a tv series he was uh, the creator of or was he a director for hire on a few episodes or I'm not absolutely sure to tell you the truth because I don't have a whole lot of information on it. Uh, probably have to do a little more searching, but at the very least, he did he did direct at least one episode, if not all. I'm not really too sure. Let me. Okay, actually, I'm right. I'm reading right now that he both wrote and directed the series. Right on. So some of the V6 apparently are back in it too. So we know kind of what to expect now. <laughs> it's probably not going to be heavy drama. <laughs> and it's not going to be uh, proletariat uh, in nature, I assume. So, uh, But okay, we'll catch up with the bio in the episode finale, whether it's uh, two episodes uh, that we'll do uh, when all is said and done. But uh, we'll let you know how it goes. But for now, this has been Japan on Fire on the Podcast on Fire Network website for this show and all our other shows and bonus episodes, podcastonfire.com. Email if you have any questions or feedback. Podcast on fire at googlemail.com. Yes, people do use email because we get some feedback there occasionally. We are on Facebook as well. Facebook.com forward slash PUF network. Join the discussion group. We, We call it simply Podcast on Fire Network. So that's how you search for us. Our Twitter handle is at Podcast on Fire, so you can follow us that way too. I review Hong Kong movies, Taiwanese movies, uh, whether adults only or Kung Fu or Ninja. You know, I do it all almost at SoGoodReviews.com and I also re- uh, video review at SleazyKVideo.com and my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews. If you're an iTunes user, rate and subscribe if you wish to have Japan of Fire delivered to you as soon as it's released and if you have the time uh, leave a small written comment as well about the show what you thought of the show we would we would love to see that and you can also you can actually comment on stitcher radio as well uh, while you stream you can also leave comments so uh, that application is available on the apple app store and google play if you wish to stream us well once again our uh, blog is located at vcinemashow.com that's s-h-o-w and uh speaking of which uh, 
the design of the site really needs to be updated. So uh, just a part in it for now. It's, it's really, I haven't done anything with it in years. So, uh, but anyway, so uh, we can also be found on Twitter at the cinema show, I guess again, excuse me again, S H O W. And then on Facebook, uh, just V cinema, just search for us. You'll find us. Um, we're there, etc. And uh, we are done for now. So see you in, a month or two or three, who knows? But uh, we'll uh, we'll conclude Sabu soon enough. So thank you everybody for uh, for listening here and uh, for following. And hopefully maybe we've created some interest in this Japanese director's filmography. It's certainly been a mixture of new experiences for me and some rewatches, but uh, largely quite a delight to uh, to follow this filmography. So we'll continue that next time. And I've been Kenobi, and with me was the Cinemas Coffin John. So say bye bye. Sayonara, suckers. Suckers. Flexing your Japanese language muscles here. <laughs> yeah, right? wow. Just, just the only, just the only word that everyone knows in Japanese. That's I it. learned, <laughs> I learned it recently from my wife. Sayonara. <laughs>